Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. As always, it's only under the empowering ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we are able to take in the Word of God, understand it, store it as epinosis doctrine, and apply it in a way that contributes to our spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the freedom to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you for the security that you have provided this nation in the last week, and we pray that you would continue to protect us, you would continue to provide for our security, that you would confound our enemies and those that might attempt some sort of terrorist attack in this nation. We pray that you would uh, foil their plot, that you would bring uh, their machinations to the attention of the proper authorities. Father, we know that our security lies only and exclusively in you. Father, we pray for our president. We pray that you would continue to strengthen him, that you would continue to give him endurance and perseverance, that you would uh, watch over his health, that you would protect him from any plots against him, and that you would continue to give him the, the wisdom that he needs to make the decisions he needs to keep this nation secure and free. Father, we pray for our troops overseas, especially those in this congregation who are uh, already there, like Tom Tanucci and others like Mark who are on their way there, others who have been called up for service. We pray that you would watch over them. We pray that you would give them strength and endurance. We pray that you would give them wisdom in the execution of their tasks and responsibilities, that they might, if in harm's way, de- demonstrate courage, and that they might be an example and a testimony to those around them. Father, now we pray for us as we gather together this morning to study your word, that we might have the courage we need to honestly face our own lives, our own thinking, that you would challenge us with your word and that we would be responsive to that challenge. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I thought I would share something a little humorous with you this morning. Somebody sent me some jokes on email this week. Great truths about life that you learn as a child. First of all, no matter how hard you try, you can't baptize cats. Second, when your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. Now, here's a wise saying. If your sister hits you, don't hit her back. They always catch the second person. Never ask your three-year-old brother to hold a tomato. Fifth, you can't trust dogs to watch your food. Sixth, something we should all pay attention to is don't sneeze when someone is cutting your hair. Seventh, never hold a dustbuster and a cat at the same time. Eighth, you can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. Ninth, don't wear polka dot underwear under white shorts. And ten, the best place to be when you're sad is in Grandpa's lap. All right. Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we will continue our study on God's grace provision for pastors. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we continue our study of God's grace provision for pastors. 
Now let's remind ourselves briefly of the four laws that are being applied in these chapters from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 10. The first law is the law of liberty. This is directed towards self. This is a spiritual ordinance directed towards self that expresses the believer's freedom to glorify the Lord. The rule confers on every believer the right to enter into any activity that is not sinful and will not cause personal failure in the Christian life. Now, we're going to come back and apply that in a unique way this morning, and I know I just have a little perversity going today, and I know I'm going to step on somebody's toes. Law of liberty. Notice it says that the believer has the right to enter into any activity that is not sinful. That means that it's not specifically prohibited or prescribed by the Word of God and will not cause personal failure in the Christian life. Now, that's an interesting application because what that means is that there are some things that you can do that are legitimate and fine, but you know they're going to distract you from doctrine. They're going to distract you from the spiritual life, and therefore they're going to cause personal failure in the Christian life, even though they're they're wonderful activities and other people can do them, but perhaps you can't. Every believer has liberty in Christ. The question is that there are times when we need to restrict our liberty. That brings into account the second law, the law of love, which is directed toward other believers. This is the impersonal love application toward other believers. This is a spiritual law based on consideration for immature believers. This rule places love for the weaker Christian ahead of the law of liberty. This is what we're studying in part and 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As an application of impersonal love, the believer refrains from participating in a legitimate activity, not because it's wrong, but to spare susceptible believers from temptation in their area of weakness. Now, that application is such. See, these aren't, in a sense, uh, I mean, the application of one or the other is not exclusive or something you apply all the time. This is true, as we'll see in Paul's case. There may be today in this group of people you apply this law. Tomorrow in another group of people you add an, you apply another law. Today you exercise your freedom with one group of people. Tomorrow you're with another group and you don't exercise your freedom. Law of expediency. This, again, is going to be developed in 1 Corinthians 9. This is a spiritual ordinance based on consideration for the unbeliever. A believer refrains from doubtful activities not because they are sinful, but because they may mislead or offend an unbeliever and prevent him from recognizing the true issue of the gospel, that Christ died for his sins. And then the fourth is the law of personal sacrifice, the law of personal sacrifice which is directed toward God. This is a spiritual principle directed toward God that involves the abandonment of a completely legitimate function in life in order to more intensely serve the Lord in a specialized capacity. The motive underlying this sacrifice is always evangelism and spiritual growth of the individual believer. This is In this application, this is when you make a decision that there are certain things that you will forego for the entirety of your life in order to not become a distraction or hindrance to other believers. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we will see that the law of personal sacrifice is the issue in the first 15 verses. We got down to about verse uh, 13, well, about 9 or 10 last week, I think. Uh, So we're still dealing with the law of personal sacrifice in chapter 9. Then, starting in 16 to 23, we have the law of expediency. And 9 to the end, we're going to introduce a new law, which is the law of self-mastery. So we're still detailing the law of personal sacrifice as it is exemplified in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now remember, Paul is an apostle. This is his emphasis in the first verse. Am I not an apostle? Yes, I am. Am I not free? Yes. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Certainly. Are you not my work in the Lord? He just shoots these out like a machine gun, indicating that at this point his heart rate's going up and Paul is getting a little bit passionate in this response because he is getting impatient 
with the Corinthian arrogance. And this is a problem that we all run into in our own lives at times, is getting arrogant and thinking, this is my perfect right to do something. Why should I limit myself and my enjoyment of something simply because there's some idiot baby believer out there who doesn't have enough doctrine, enough sense to come in out of the rain? Now, that's how we phrase it in our own thinking, because you see, we're in arrogance, so we're in carnality, and your vocabulary might not be that clean. But see, that's the problem, is we, we get impatient with somebody, and so the Corinthians are expressing this. This is, Paul hears it after he goes through the principles in chapter 8. He, he knows exactly what their response will be. We know this because of everything we have been told about the Corinthians up to this point, that they're in carnality, they're in arrogance, and they're emphasizing their own knowledge, no matter what impact that may have on anybody else. They are enmeshed in self-absorption. So at this point, Paul brilliantly turns the table on them. He is going to uh, take the position now of the stronger believer who has ha- and he's going to put the Corinthians in the position of the weaker brother. They're sitting there saying, look, I'm the stronger believer. We have all this knowledge. Why should we give up our rights for some weaker brother who doesn't know any better? And Paul says, well, I did the same thing for you because in one particular area you were weak and I was strong and I willingly... Uh, gave up my right to a salary in order to not let that be a distraction to you. Not only that, but I didn't even mention mention it to you at all. And in Philippians chapter 4, we saw that Paul mentioned in his letter to the epistle, uh, I mean his epistle to the Philippians, that not one church in Greece contributed to his financial support. And of course that would include the Corinthians. So they didn't contribute to his financial support. They weren't even concerned about it. He spent his time in Corinth and not one Corinthian even thought about, well, what is Paul doing to, uh, to take care of his physical needs, his financial needs? How's he feeding himself? They just assumed that that if he was uh, engaged in tent-making, that that was just fine. And, of course, that wasn't going to impact their pocketbook at all, so they weren't going to say a thing. And that just demonstrates the insensitivity and the self-centeredness that, unfortunately, is true of many, many believers because they're just so concerned with their own financial situation that they don't understand the ultimate realities of life. And the ultimate realities of life are that you can't take it with you, and the whatever financial resources that God gives us, he gives to us so that we can use some of it, and that's up to our discretion how much. It's not legislated. We're not supposed to be, uh, to be motivated in giving by guilt manipulation. Unfortunately, that's what happens in so many churches is that pastors spend about 20 or 30 percent of their time over the course of a year teaching about money, talking about money, trying to uh, get into the pocketbooks of everybody in the congregation. And mostly it's because they don't teach enough doctrine to their congregations for their congregations to understand grace and to become grace-oriented and to understand that grace orientation means a gratitude response to God for all that he has done for us. And the more that we understand everything that God has done for us, everything that God has supplied us, everything that we have in Christ, everything related to our position in Christ, the more we understand these things, the more it should engender in us a tremendous gratitude that is expressed financially towards our giving as unto the Lord. sad thing is that very few pastors understand that, so they feel like uh, uh, they have to spend their time bending the arm of most of the people in their congregation to get them to contribute to the church. Now, the problem that Paul had was that and that Paul is demonstrating here is that the pastor does have a right to be supported by the congregation. And he is addressing these carnal Corinthians. And remember who's talking here. This is Paul, the greatest apostle, the greatest theologian that has ever existed. And yet, these Corinthians don't realize anything. They are not grateful. They don't know what they have. They don't appreciate what they have. And it's clear from the way they respond to him. In fact, like uh, many immature believers in many churches, they want to dictate their control, dictate theology to the Apostle Paul and have him operate on the basis of their agenda rather than submitting to his authority. 
and that works always works itself out in the way churches compensate pastors. In fact, pastors are among the uh, most poorly compensated workers uh, anywhere in this country. Another problem that we have with pastors and paying the salary of pastors is that you have people who think that they they pay your salary. Now, I've never had this happen, but I've had um, I've, it's come close. I thought somebody was going to say it one time. But I've heard other people run into this problem is they'll have somebody in the church say, well, you need to do thus and so, and just remember, we pay your salary. Now, this is one of the most difficult things, I think, for for, uh, laymen to understand, and that is that even though the church writes a regular check to the pastor, it's not a sal- the church isn't paying the pastor a salary in the same sense that you're getting a salary when you go to work. Because in the operation of the church, things are similar but different. And the difference is that the congregation gives to the church as unto the Lord. They're not giving just to Preston City Bible Church. They're giving to support the ministry where they're being fed. They're giving to the Lord. So this is the Lord's work. It's the Lord's money. And once that money leaves your hand, it's no longer yours to worry about in a certain sense. You can't control it. You don't dictate policy. I remember years ago I heard uh, uh, one man who was involved in a uh, going to a church where they were, they were going through a church split. And this man commented, he says, well, I've put so much money into this church, I'm not about to leave. I want to make sure they spend it right. I thought, boy, you don't understand a thing about grace giving. You shouldn't have ever given a dime because you're, you're trying to control and manipulate the church. The church gives their money as unto the Lord to, to a local church. At that point, it comes under the direction of the board of deacons, and the board of deacons determine how much they are going to distribute to the pastor and his family, recognizing that it's the responsibility of the local congregation to provide for the needs of the pastor and his family, and that that is their responsibility. And this is Paul's focus, beginning in verse 4. There he says, Do we not have a right to eat and drink? He is specifically applying this to himself as an apostle, but the application goes to pastor teachers as well he says do we not have a right to eat and drink and of course it assumes the answer yes we do the food and drink here as i stated last time is not the issue of food related to uh, the food sacrificed to idols back in chapter 8 but food and drink is a term that is used uh, almost idiomatically throughout the new testament to refer to the basic necessities of life So this indicates that the pastor-teacher is clearly entitled to eat, to live, to have his life's necessities taken care of by a local congregation. Then in verse 5, Paul says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brother of the Lord, and Cephas, that is Peter. Cephas was his Aramaic name. So the second question that he asks in verse 5, focuses on the support for the pastor's family. And here it is clear that the other apostles were all being supported by local churches. They and their wives, they were taking their wife along with them when they were traveling. If they had children, the children were coming along. And the congregation supported all of the other apostles. Now, I want you to make that clear. When Paul says some things later on, Paul is not challenging the right of these other pastors, these apostles, to be supported by the local church. He's going to make a decision based on the freedom that he has as a, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to not take a salary. And he's going to argue that the reason he's chosen not to take a salary is so this won't be a distraction to unbelievers and so this won't be a distraction to these carnal, self-absorbed Corinthians. He's made a legitimate decision, but he's, that's for him. He's not imposing that decision on, other, uh, on the other apostles. In fact, we could say that Paul is choosing not to charge for his services and he has no problem with the other apostles charging for their services. Now, you may think that's an extreme way to put it, charging for your services, but in some sense, that's what it is. A pastor can go to a church, and he can say, well, I'll come if you pay me a salary, but I won't come if you don't pay me a salary. Now, I don't care whether you're functioning on grace giving or what kind of a system you have in a local church. If a pastor's 
being there is contingent upon being paid a salary, whether or not he, he can afford the time and energy to study and teach and, and pastor the congregation, then at some sense he is charging for his services. So Paul clearly recognizes that the pastor-teacher has a right to make a decision in relationship to the salary that is being paid or not being paid, but it's his decision, and it's an individual decision, and it's a matter of freedom. It's neither right nor wrong to expect a salary. It's up to the individual. It is a matter of freedom. Now in verse 6, Paul comes along and says, Or is it only Barnabas? And I who have no right to refrain from working. Now here we have heavy sarcasm. The Holy Spirit clearly uses sarcasm to slap us across the face to get our attention. He says, do you think it's only Barnabas and I who do not have a right to refrain from teaching, I mean from working? No. Clearly, others have that right and they have a right to also uh, take their support from the local congregation. He mentions Barnabas because it was Barnabas who apparently was wealthy and had sold his possessions at one time and given them to the church and apparently had a self-supportive ministry. And there are some pastors who are able to do that and don't take a salary from, from the church. But Paul is not saying that that is necessarily normative or something even better. It's just an option. Then in verse 7, we saw that Paul gives examples from three different kinds of economic work. The first is the soldier. This is a person who operates on a fixed income, and he has a right to expect to be remunerated for his work, for his labor, for the time he puts in as a soldier. Second, there is the the capitalist, the entrepreneur, the uh, farmer who owns the land and is going to invest his capital in putting in a vineyard so that he can uh, earn his living from the rewards of his capital. And it's a long-term investment because it takes several years for the... uh, uh, grape vines to grow and to yield uh, mature fruit so that he can produce a good wine. And then the third question focuses on even the slave. The slave tends a flock, and doesn't he benefit from the flock itself? He drinks the milk of the flock. He pr- probably gets an opportunity to eat some of the uh, lamb from the flock, and that supports him. So his point is that every person throughout the spectrum of society expects to get some sort of financial benefit and support from their labor. And this is also true for pastor-teacher. Now, in verse 8, he brings the point home. He, he says, do I speak these things as a mere man? That is, is this just human viewpoint? Is this just my opinion? No, he says, does law says the same thing also? Does not the law say the same also? So he goes back to the Mosaic law in order to substantiate his point, that this is a universal principle. It is applicable in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4. Now, Deuteronomy 25.4 states, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, this is a proverbial statement in the ancient world. And the thrust of it was that the ox has a right to feed on the grain. As it's treading out the grain, it has a right to to stick its nose down in the grain and to eat in the process of of, uh, trampling out the grain and threshing out the grain. The point is it's not oxen that God's concerned about. There's a principle there, and the principle is that a person has a right to expect to be supported on the basis of the work that they perform, whether it's secular work or whether it is uh, full-time professional Christian work. Now, this he applies to the salary issue. Verse 10, he says, or does he say it all together? He, he ends verse 9 saying, is it oxen God is concerned about? No, because this is a proverbial statement. Verse 10, or does he say it all together for our sakes? This is a point of application. He says it's for our sakes. No doubt that this is written. It had application not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, that he who plows should plow in hope. In other words, if you work, you should have, part of your motivation is the fact that this is going to return something from your investment of labor. And he who threshes in the hope should be partaker of his hope. In other words, you should benefit from the uh, results of your own labor. 
That's true in the secular realm. No matter what your job might be, you have a right, and you should be motivated by the hope of advancement, the hope of reward, the hope of payment of a salary. And then he applies it in verse 11 to the spiritual realm. He says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And the answer is, notice he just keeps asking these questions, and the point is, certainly, the pastor-teacher has a right to expect to be uh, adequately and generously supported by a congregation. Now, this is about where I stopped the last time, talking about various aspects of application of this principle in terms of the uh, professional Christian service. And I pointed out that one of the, it's shameful that the way many churches and many ministries treat their pastors and their staff. If we believe in grace, grace means above anything else, it means we, we get something not on the basis of who and what we are, but on the basis of the generosity of God. And that's the issue in grace, it's the issue in grace giving, and it should be the issue in everything that involves any Christian ministry. It has always amazed me and appalled me to hear about Christian ministries who think that for some reason that their ministry is so great and so important that they think, well, part of your remuneration is the privilege of working for us. I remember hearing that from a seminary one time that, that offered a salary, and this wasn't that long ago, offered a man who had five children a salary of $25,000 for the privilege of teaching at their school. Now, that, 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 that's an embarrassment. That's not enough for a man to support his family. This was a man who had a Ph.D. and was, already had built a strong reputation. But even if he had just come out of seminary, that kind of pay should be an embarrassment. Any kind of pay that, that comes from a, Christ, from a church or from a Christian ministry should be generous. It should be equal to the kind of pay that somebody would get for the same job in the secular realm, if not greater than, because we're demonstrating a principle of grace and generosity by the way we handle our employees. And that is part of our testimony, and it is a shame the way some ministries compensate the people who work for them. It dishonors Christ, and it is completely antithetical to to a grace principle. Now, as I stated last time, I don't want you all to think I'm jumping all over the congregation that you don't pay me enough. I'm not talking about us. Now, what do you really pay a pastor for? What is a pastor supported for? Well, one thing he's supported for is his background, his training, his qualifications. A pastor should be a man who has personally sacrificed in order to get the training. And that means more than that a pastor has just spent a lot of time listening to tapes and going to Bible class at some congregation. That's expected of everybody who's a believer, to listen to tapes and to to consistently attend Bible class and to study their notes on a regular basis when they go home. If a man is, thinks he has the gift of pastor-teacher, then he should train accordingly. He should plan to go to seminary or Bible college or acquire some sort of training. Now, there are some men today who, because they either discover that they have a gift too late in life, or they wake up to their spiritual responsibilities later in life when they have children and and uh, they're married. They have uh, or they're married and then have children. We'll get that in the right order. And uh, and they don't they can't actually pack up everybody and move all the way across the country to Southern California and go to Chafer Seminary or go down to the D.C. area, go to Capital Seminary or one of the other seminaries. But there are options today for training. And a pastor needs to have training. I don't care at all for some of these pastors who come out of these churches where they don't have any disciplined academic training. We need to raise the standard. We need to get back to a high standard for a pastor-teacher. If we believe that we're to do everything as unto the Lord, that means that we are going to do everything that we do in a way that approaches excellence.
to the highest degree possible. And that means that we should demand of our pastors and of men who have the gift of pastor-teacher that they excel, that they don't take some partial route to get into the pulpit just so they can snow a bunch of people and get on some kind of power trip, which is unfortunately happens to many young men. We come out of a tradition that was established by Pastor Theme down in, down in Houston. And look at what a fantastic example he set in terms of his study, his undergraduate work in college and then going to seminary, mastering the languages, studying theology. That is, he set an example for all of us of excellence, of academic excellence, and to then go into the pastoral ministry and spend maximum amount of time in discipline, study, and teaching of the Word of God. And that is based on the discipline study that comes in seminary. See, in seminary, the training is not just about getting the content. There is something that transpires, something that is crucial, that takes place in terms of personal discipline and within the context of that academic training where you're with other men who are sitting in classrooms and you're discussing ideas, you have assignments to do. You cannot learn how to do exegesis by listening to the results of somebody else's exegesis. It is impossible. What always happens, and I could give you more examples than you'd want to hear, what always happens with these men who think that they figured out how to do exegesis by sitting under a pastor or listening to tapes is that they make mistakes. See, you go to seminary, you take exegetical courses, and you have to write paper after paper after paper, and you get critiqued on those papers, and that's where you make your mistakes. You don't learn out in the pulpit and make your mistakes teaching garbage from the pulpit. You have to go to seminary, and that's where you develop and learn the skills. But what happens to those who have not gone to seminary is they become completely dependent upon somebody else, somebody else to do all the work. Now, let's use a little analogy here. Some of you I know enjoy good food. You like going to a good restaurant. Some of you are good cooks, and you enjoy cooking. Now, I particularly have a fondness for good food. Now, I would rather go to a restaurant where the chef has spent some time, he doesn't have to go to the finest schools around, but he knows something about the ingredients of food. He has spent some time working, experimenting, studying with different uh, seasonings, different herbs, different ingredients, mixing them together. He understands the dynamics and the chemistry of food. He knows how to put those things together and create something that has wonderful flavor as opposed to the person who just gets prepackaged stuff, we've all gone to those restaurants, where they just get something from a restaurant supply company and all they're doing is reheating it in the oven or reheating it on the stove. Now, it's not quite as good. It may not even be, be that nutritious. And it's the difference between somebody who knows how to cook, knows how to go to the store, pick all the right ingredients, and come home and prepare a wonderful meal and somebody who comes home with a with a microwave dinner and just pops it in the oven and reheats what somebody else has cooked. And that's exactly what a number of these pastors can do, is nothing more than reheat what somebody else has cooked. And because they don't understand the process, because they haven't taken the time to understand what goes into creating this meal, they often end up making mistakes. Now, that can happen to seminary-trained uh, pastors, too. You see, the main thing that happens in seminary, besides the fact that you need to learn Greek and you need to learn Hebrew and you need to study theology and you need to study church history, the thing that happens that undergirds all of that is a man learns how to think critically. And you learn how to think critically, and in the classroom you hear a professor who may say something you don't agree with, may take a position you don't agree with. Then you have to go home and say, okay, what's his rationale? What are his reasons for that? Why does he say what he says, and how can I refute it from the Bible, going to the text, looking at the grammar? And sometimes you realize he's right, I can't support my position. But in the process, you're learning how to think and how to reason. Now, one of the problems that really 
really irritates me and has over the years, and I see this arrogance out there in a, almost always in, the, in pastors who never went to any kind of formal training, is that they won't go to a pastor's conference. And you'll always hear them coming up with some kind of lame excuse. Well, you know, they'll tell their congregation, all those people do when they go to a pastor's conference is sit around and talk about how big their congregations are or, or what they're doing here and how God's blessing them there. And they, it's just a lot of bragging and that's it. And that's just garbage. That's a bold-faced lie. And I've never seen that happen at a doctrinal teaching pastor's conference in 20 years of going to them. What happens is you get men... Most of the men who go are seminary trained or Bible college trained. They've had some kind of formal training. What happens is they get together and they're discussing the issues. They're discussing exegetical problems and difficulties and how you work through them. And sometimes there are men who take positions that, that aren't the one you were, that's not the position you were taught. That's not the position you learned. And what happens is the guys who haven't been to seminary don't know how to handle that. They can't sit in an environment and argue and understand and engage in debate across the table. Uh, see, when I went through Dallas Seminary, and uh, this is true of most seminaries, you sit there and, you, and everybody has lunch at the same time. And so you go down to the lunchroom, you got your brown bag, you got your lunch, you sit there, and you'll start debating. And one guy will take one position, another guy will take the other position, and you'll debate each other. This sharpens your thinking, teaches you how to think. And then the next day you'll switch positions. Now you have to argue for the opposite position. But you learn how to think. Problem is with pastors who don't go through that kind of academic training where they have that interaction with people who don't agree with them is they can only regurgitate what they're taught, but they never learn how to think. And that's what's important about seminary training or Bible college training, some sort of formal training, is it teaches a man how to think critically. Now, unfortunately, what happens is churches get into the trap of getting some second-rate pastor because they either they can't afford anything different or they think, well, this guy came out of such and such a church, so he must be pretty good. And what happens is that these men frequently pull the wool over the eyes of the sheep simply because they're a good parrot. They can repeat what they were taught. They can't think, and eventually they get into some kind of trouble. As I said earlier, this can even happen with... Uh, Pastors who've had seminary training. A few years ago, there was a pastor, I won't mention where or who, but he had seminary training. But when he went to seminary, he spent most of his time trying to argue and correct the professors, and he never exercised humility and teachability to learn how to think in those four years he was at seminary. But he was a good parrot. So he started a church and had a good church, and it grew for a while. And then a few years ago, he started trying to think for himself. Now, he should have done that when he was in seminary, when he could have had the opportunity to learn and to make mistakes. But he made some mistakes when he started trying to think for himself, and he rejected the whole concept of confession as being necessary in the spiritual life for the filling of the Spirit and for spiritual growth. As a result of that, and because of uh, what he was teaching, it caused a split in his congregation. It caused a, a rift among many people who were longtime friends in doctrinal churches and doctrinal pastors, all because he had never learned how to think and started going down the wrong path. Pastors have to learn how to think, and they ha can only learn that in some sort of academic, disciplined, training situation. Think about it. Most Christians sitting out in the pew demand higher qualifications and training of their plumber, their electrician, their cable guy than they do of their pastor. We need to hold our pastoral candidates to a high standard, and we need to be willing to pay for that. We want excellence in the pulpit. We want men who know the languages that don't just simply regurgitate what somebody else taught them about the languages, but really don't know how to do exegesis. The only way you can learn how to exe do exegesis is to do exegesis. And, and whenever you're learning to do anything, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. I hope some people never find the tapes I t taught the first five years I was in the pastorate. I mean, you're learning a tremendous amount, and anybody who's learning anything is going to be making mistakes uh, to some degree. So you go through that learning process. But we need to have high standards for pastors. 
we need to expect high standards even of ourselves. Now, another thing that happens, and this came up this last week, somebody sent me a, an email and told me about two websites of, of uh, doctrinal churches that were relatively new churches. It's an interesting contrast. The pastor at one of those churches has gone to seminary, he majored in Greek, and he knows the original languages. The pastor at the other congregation had just spent a lot of time in a doctrinal church, never went to seminary, never got the languages. Now, guess which website is loaded with all kinds of technical information about Greek and all kinds of technical stuff about exegesis? The side of the guy who does never got the training. See, it's a snow job. And this is what I've seen happen again and again and again is some of these men get out there and they're just blowing smoke at their congregation and they've heard all these terms and they've heard people do it and they manage to memorize all this stuff and, and they put that out there on their website and they're just going to smoke everybody thinking that they really know some stuff. But they don't have the academic background and they don't know it. You sit down and start arguing a fine point of exegesis with them and they're lost. All they've been able to do is regurgitate what somebody else said. The man who has all the training had some real helpful things on his website and some good doctrines, but he's not, and, and he is using the language when it's necessary and when it elucidates the passage. And that's often what you see in many areas of life. If people who don't know anything try to act and, as if they know a lot and they're just running a... Uh, a smokescreen, and the people who really do know and have the education, they don't flaunt it. They just use it when it's helpful and when it's beneficial. The problem is that the Word of God calls the people in the pew sheep, and that is not a complimentary term. And the Bible calls people in the pew sheep because they're stupid and they follow after people who blow smoke at them and convince them they know something when they don't know anything. And... uh well, unfortunately, sheep, I guess, will never smarten up. But it's a sad thing when I look out on what's happened with a lot of churches and with a lot of groups, and I'm always amazed that people who have spent 10, 15, 20, 30 years sitting under the fantastic ministry of Pastor Theme with all of his wonderful academic credentials and all of his study, and then they they go to some, and or they start listening to tapes of some guy who's never been to seminary, has no academic training, and then they say, oh, he's so wonderful. And, you know, the interesting thing is those of us who have the training, those of us who have the experience and have been around, look at these guys who are out there as absolute frauds because they don't know anything. They're just blowing smoke at people. And this is a sad situation that has taken place in many churches because people... I guess they, they just weren't ever positive to begin with. They're just more impressed with a lot of, of uh, multi-syllable words and a lot of technical-sounding exegesis rather than somebody who really knows how to handle the Scriptures. And it's sad. And fortunately, in the last few years, there have been some great men who have come out of seminary and gone through seminary training and have reversed some of this trend that took place for many years in doctrinal churches, this idea that, well, all you need to do is just study somebody's tapes and you can figure out how to be a pastor. So one of the things that you pay for as you support a pastor is the fact that this man has spent four years in undergraduate school where he's got his undergraduate degree, and many times uh, young men ask me, well, what should I, what should I major in? And a pastor should major in just about anything at the undergraduate level. I think they should, almost everyone needs to pick up a minor in something to do with computers now because computers and technology are playing such a major role in our lives now that you need to know, uh, know a good bit about that so that when you have problems, you're not completely dependent on other people to come solve your, your computer problems. But whether you study in science, we have uh, we frequently have had Charlie Clough here, and Charlie majored in mathematics at MIT. Certainly not a field that most people would think would be necessary and would be preparatory for going into the pastoral ministry. And yet, one of the wonderful things about uh, Charlie's ministry 
is that because of that background in science and math, he looks at the Scripture and comes up with applications and, and illustrations that the rest of us don't ever see because we don't have that technical science and math background, and that has really strengthened and his ministry and given it a, a unique slant. Other, you can major in liberal arts, major in science, major in uh, history, English. If you're going to go in the pulpit ministry, you should take a number of courses in English and writing so that you can learn how to think and learn how to compose and organize uh, your thoughts. And then you go to seminary. And you should pick a seminary where you can get a four-year degree and get as much language training as you can. Now, all of that costs money. You're going to spend anywhere from 25000 to $75,000 or more to get a good undergraduate education. Then you're going to turn around and go four more years to get a master's of theology. And if you can't do that, three years to get a D-min. And if you go to a regular seminary where they're charging, I think uh, Dallas is now charging $300 a semester hour. So you take $300 and multiply that by 15 hours a semester or 18 hours a semester, and you're looking at spending uh, around ten or $12,000 a year simply on tuition. On top of that, you have to buy books, and a pastor should have an enormous library because you never know where you're going to end up. This was a wonderful advice that Randy Price gave me when he was in his first year at seminary, and, and I was... Uh, uh, a year behind him, and I went up to visit him, and we were sitting in his dorm, and I was looking at his books, and I thought, why in the world do you need all these books? At that time, Randy, Randy's a real bibliophile. He's got a library. Those of you who've seen mine, Randy's library is three or four times mine. I remember, well, I'm not going to tell that story on him. I remember one time, though, he uh, came back from England with, I think he said, he bought seven or $8,000 worth of books. And uh, he's got an enormous library. He has all of these out-of-print books that were published back in the 19th century. He has some old Greek manuscripts, and, and he's got a fantastic library. But his point to me is a, was that you never know where you're going to end up. You may not end up in Dallas, Texas, or in Houston, or in L.A., or someplace where there's a decent theological library within 100 miles. You may end up in someplace like Preston City, Connecticut. <laughs> Well, there's not a decent theological library for about a two-hour drive. You've got some good stuff at Harvard and some down at Yale. But but uh, you, if you're going to be able to avail yourself of the kind of research and information you need, that's going to come from books and your your own personal library. And so a pastor needs to spend money developing that library. And books today, I'm a amazed at the price of some books. I bought a commentary on 1 Corinthians last year. It cost me $75. I don't think I spent more than $10 for a book when I was in seminary. That's just how inflation has occurred over the, over the last uh, 30, 25 to 30 years. But pastors need to build all that. If you want quality in the pulpit, it's not inexpensive. It costs money to get a good education. It costs money to have a good library. It costs money to put together the resources, and congregations need to realize that, and that's part of what they are compensating when they hire a pastor. So there is the the responsibility of paying for his training, paying for his experience, and that is going to cost something. So uh, churches need to take that into account. They need to take into account his family responsibilities. His, his, is he married? Does he have children? He has the same desires and hopes and dreams for his children, for his family, as anybody else in the congregation. And he should be uh, compensated in such a way that this does not become a distraction to him. That's the point in the illustration. You shall not muzzle an ox. Don't create circumstances that limit him that keep him from enjoying the benefits of his ministry. In other words, don't create situations where you have some pastors that have to work or they just can barely, if they, if they try to go full-time on their salary, it's so, it's so meager that they, they're constantly distracted with paying their bills and getting what they need and trying to figure out some way to, to uh, make that dollar stretch 
five different ways, and that is a distraction to them, and money should never be a distraction to a pastor. He should never have to worry about how he's going to pay his bills or, or put his children through through uh, private school or put his children through college. Uh, that should be taken care of by the congregation. A congregation should be sensitive to those needs. A pastor should be generously and graciously supported by a congregation. This is Paul's principle in verse 11. If we've sown spiritual things for you, it is, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? A pastor has a right to expect to be uh, completely supported by the congregation. Verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? See, he drives a point home. Others come and teach. Apollos has been there, and you supported him. And there were others that came, and you supported them. Shouldn't we also uh, have the same privilege? Nevertheless, he says, we have not used this right. This was a right that we had, but I freely chose, Paul says, I freely chose not to exercise that right, and I did not put a financial uh, burden on the Corinthians. He said, but I endured all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. That's the application of the law of expediency, which he will develop after verse 16. It says, we did not want to hinder the gospel. I didn't want money to be an issue. I did not want that to distract you because Paul, in his wisdom, understood the arrogance of the Corinthians, and so he wanted to make sure the issue was clear. Now, the sad thing is that if you go to many evangelistic meetings, and then you will often see them pass a plate. Now, you should never take up a collection at a meeting that is designed for evangelism because that communicates the wrong idea that somehow the money you give will help get you into heaven. And that is the wrong idea. Money should not be an issue when you're dealing with unbelievers. The only thing that should be the issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul, because his ministry in Corinth was primarily evangelistic at the beginning, he did not make an issue out of money so that that would not be a distraction. But that was Paul's choice. Paul is not saying this is the only way to do it. Paul is saying this was a decision I made in the freedom of my priesthood. But the implication from the questions he asked earlier is that this was not necessarily the practice of every apostle. Now, the application here is that there apparently is in the Scripture flexibility with how pastors can handle money or expect remuneration. And he, he's going to make another application. I'm going to bring that together in a minute, but I want to get through the next verse first. He says, Do you not know who, that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve it at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? And this is a reference to the Old Testament practice where offerings were brought to the temple and the priests would get to eat the food that was brought to the temple, the, what was left over from the sacrifices, and that was part of the support for the priests in the Old Testament. That was part, in some cases, they also benefited from the tithe that was brought into the storehouse. That's a term for the temple. Tithing was part of the income tax under Israel. Tithing is not for today. The principle today is free will a grace giving. Tithing was part of the Old Testament system to support the bureaucracy of the theocracy, and the bureaucracy was run by the priesthood. There were also free will offerings in the Old Testament, and since Israel and the temple are gone, the mandatory offerings that they had was really their income tax, and those mandatory tithes were for the support of the priesthood, support of the temple, and there was a, thir- a tithe that was taken every third year for the support of the orphans and widows, basically to provide for a welfare system. The priests, however, partook of the excess as well, the free will offerings that were also given. Now, let's look at a little application here. Sometimes we emphasize the fact, or we have the policy here always, that that we believe in grace-giving. We emphasize that that's the principle when it comes to the tape ministry. The tapes go out. There's no charge associated with the tapes that we are emphasizing, and we have chosen, and I have chosen, 
to emphasize a grace policy for tapes to teach something about grace because grace is so poorly understood today. But does that mean that it is sinful or wrong for somebody, some ministry, to charge for their tapes? Of course not. It's the same principle that we have here. Paul chose not to make money an issue. Other apostles chose to take a salary in effect, to charge for their services. It's not that one was right and one was wrong. It's just an application of a principle. The same is true in some ministries where they publish their books and they charge for everything. Some ministries charge for every sheet of paper that goes out. Other ministries operate on a grace principle. That is an individual choice. It's not that one is sinful and one is not. Now, that's a hard thing for some people who've grown up with a grace policy to understand. But there's nothing in the Word of God that says, Thou shalt not sell books and charge for them. Thou shalt not sell tapes and charge for them. There's nothing in the Word of God that says that. It is a matter of freedom. And so you can have some ministries that charge for their tapes, and if that's what they choose to do, then that's fine. But on the other hand, ministries should not be uh, twisting the arm of everybody who comes in the congregation to, to fill the uh, offering plate, which unfortunately happens at every place. So there are different ways to handle these things, and the Bible gives pastors the freedom of choice as to how they want to handle it, and one is not necessarily better than the other. It would be real easy to say, well, Paul, isn't Paul more grace-oriented? He's not charging for his ministry. He's not even mentioning money. And apparently the other apostles were saying, okay, I'll come, but you need to support the family. And Paul makes it clear here that that's a matter of freedom and a matter of choice. It is not an issue of one being right and one being wrong, and that's his whole point, is that there is freedom in the body of Christ over areas where there's no direct information, no direct prohibition from Scripture, and it's up to the individual to decide how they're going to uh, operate. And Paul says, I chose, on the basis of personal sacrifice, I chose not to take anything from the basis of love because I knew that it would just become a distraction in your spiritual life. But there were other times when Paul didn't work as a tent maker and he did take a salary from a local church as he did during the two years he was, he was in Ephesus. So we then come to verse, verse 13. Verse 13, he, um, or excuse me, verse 14. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now let me give you some practical guidelines that, that should be part of the thinking in terms of compensation for a pastor. First point, keep some distinctions in mind. It's important to understand that there are differences between the size of a congregation. A small congregation like Preston City Bible Church cannot be expected to compensate a pastor no matter what his training, no matter how uh, great a, uh, a pastor he might be. Uh, a, pa- a congregation of this size can't be expected to uh, compensate a pastor the way a, a church of 300 or 500 or 1,000 can compensate the pastor. So size is going to be part of the equation. Also, the age of the congregation and I don't mean the chronological age of the people in the congregation, although that may play a factor. If you've got a, if you've got a congregation where, uh, in a college town where 80% of your, of your congregation are university students, then uh, you're going to have a completely different scenario than if you're in a, an affluent uh, suburb of a major metropolitan area where 80% of your people are uh, are in some sort of profession, such as in medicine or legal profession or something like that, where they're making uh, six-figure salaries. So uh, the makeup of the congregation might affect some things, but by age of the congregation, I mean a new church as opposed to one that is well-established. For example, this church is blessed because we have this building and we don't have to pay to rent space and we don't have to pay for a building. If this congregation had to put out two or $3,000 a month in order to uh, take care of a, of a building, then the amount of money you could pay a, a pastor would be seriously reduced. 
new congregations that are forming before they call a pastor should uh, try to set aside a year's salary in the bank before they call a pastor. They should have that there so that they can call a man and have him work full-time to begin with unless they have a pastor who is involved in starting the congregation and has chosen, as Paul did, to operate on a tent, uh, tent-making basis for a while. Those are just some distinctions you have to keep in mind. Second, equivalent pay. Compensation for a pastor should be equivalent to what someone of of equal experience, education, and training would make out in the secular arena. This means that a congregation should check at local colleges, public schools, junior colleges, universities, and determine how much is paid for someone of that level of experience and education. If possible, they sh- the pastor should be paid more. Remember, the principle is always grace and generosity in everything that we do. Third point, the pastor's family should be generously taken care of, so the pastor's wife should not have to work outside the home. I think this is especially true if there are children, because the pastor's family should be a model for how things should be. And things, the way things should be is it's better if there are children in the home for the mother to give full-time attention to those domestic responsibilities. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong for a pastor's wife to work outside the home or their pastor's wife shouldn't work outside the home. But I think under certain conditions, uh, the congregation needs to recognize that they should make it possible that the pastor's family can survive without the pastor's wife working so that she can be give her attention more to taking care of the pastor. That's the pastor's wife's responsibility, if you didn't know that. It's not to get involved playing the piano, running Sunday school, taking care of things at the church. The pastor's wife's responsibility is to take care of the pastor. That always reminds me of my favorite story. Haddon Robinson, who was a taught homiletics at Dallas Seminary for many years and was an evangelist when he first got out of seminary. And he would travel around through West Texas and, and uh, North Texas and up through, the, up through Kansas and Oklahoma, going to small, small churches and small towns and, and uh, having evangelistic meetings. Well, he told the story one time he was at a small church out in West Texas somewhere, my, hundreds of miles from any any university or seminary or, or any other church that was similar. And this pastor was out there, and he was just isolated. He hadn't had uh, been able to talk uh, at a theological level or intellectual level with anybody that was his equal for for years. And so they went home after church, and they sit, sat down at the table. There was the pastor's wife and the pastor and, and uh, Haddon Robinson, and they're talking for three hours goes by, and they're talking about every theological problem and grammar problem and Greek and Hebrew. And, and it, it dawned on, on, on uh, uh, Haddon Robinson, that it dawned on him that, that the pastor's wife was just sitting there very quietly through this whole conversation. She wasn't showing any impatience. She wasn't uh, jittery. She was very calm. And he said, you know, we, we haven't even included her in the conversation at all. She must feel left out. So, so he turned to her and he said, Mrs. So-and-so said, now, how do you see your role as a pastor's wife? And she said, well, my job's to seduce the pastor. <laughs> pastor's wife's job is not to support the pastor. Unfortunately, as I pointed out last time, that's true in too many ch- small churches and there are too many doctrinal pastors that I know who wouldn't be doing the wonderful jobs they're doing if it weren't for their wives who have dedicated themselves to some uh, outside job so that their husband can conduct their ministry. But in many cases, that's, that's a reality due to the size of the congregation. Back to point one. So, point three, the, pa- the church should take care of the pastor's family to the best of their ability. Fourth point. Grace and generosity should be the overriding principle. Grace and generosity should be the overriding principle. And then fifth, the one thing that is so hard for many deacon boards to handle, especially when they're made up of businessmen, and I've seen this again and again, especially when you have uh, men who own their own businesses who are watching every 
penny, every dime that come in, comes in and out of that, that business, that when they come to the church, they're operating on a different principle, and it's called the faith rest drill. And it's trusting God to supply the resources. And one of the reasons I think a lot of congregations don't have the financial resources to adequately support the pastor is because the deacon board and many people in the congregation are operating on a secular business principle and they're not trusting God to supply the resources and there's no application of the faith rest drill when it comes to the financial resources of the congregation. So the fifth point is that the church needs to operate on faith, trusting God to supply the resources to support the pastor. That concludes with our study down to verse 14 and then starting in verse 15, Paul is going to shift gears and begin to talk about the application of the law of expediency, starting in verse verse 15 and following. We'll come back to that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be challenged with an understanding of grace, to be challenged with an understanding of the importance of the pastoral ministry, to be challenged with the responsibilities of the believer priest to support the local congregation and above all to be just challenged by the fact that grace should should be exhibited in every area of our life. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would realize that money is not the issue. Good works aren't the issue. Ritual's not the issue. Church involvement or church attendance is not the issue. The issue is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? The issue is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for every single sin committed in human history, including yours. Jesus Christ died so that you might have eternal life. The issue, therefore, is your decision. Do you trust and rely upon his work on the cross, or are you relying upon something else? Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. If you trust Christ as your Savior, at that instant, God the Father in his omniscience knows what you are relying upon for your eternal salvation. At that instant, you are given new life. You're regenerated, and you have eternal life that will never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.